Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gnosis Hour. Philly C and I have created a tagline we'd like to share with you. Gnosis Hour is a sacred space to share hidden gems and deep truths to play in the mystery and explore the magic, the madness, and the potential of being human right now. Today, we have two wonderful guests who happen to be two dear friends, and Philly C will now introduce them. Yes, we've got some amazing guests, Adam and Tank. Um, good friends of mine and Stephanie's. So here's a little bit about them. Adam and Tink live on Pika Pika Hill and they're interested in regenerating our wonderful planet, healing our bodies, minds and spirits and attempting to be joyful, knowing the facts. I like that last bit. Uh, so that's a reference to a, a quote from Paul Hawken. Um, yeah. So here's Adam and Tink. And um, what are we going to talk about today, Stephanie? Well, um, I thought we'd do a, a deep dive into creating community, um, healing journeys, diet, how important it is to learn to listen to your own inner guidance and not have rigid concepts of what we should eat or not eat, and whatever and anywhere that Tink and Adam want to take us. So a big welcome to Tink and Adam and over Yoda. to you. Hi. Thank you for having us. So good to have you here. What we have? Um, so... Where do we begin? Where do we begin? Begin at the beginning. Do you want to give a little bit of how you got to where you are now? Like maybe uh, Yeah, yeah. What started all these sentiments? Um were, were you ever like kind of just happily living in the matrix and just like trying to get the money and like, you know, let's just create a bunch of waste and you know, fuck the planet. Like were you ever like that? What was there a shift? Was there a yeah. change? Yeah, there was for me. Um I didn't go to university and instead started a high tech company in my early twenties, mm. and I loved it. And you know, I was, I was, I don't know, workaholic doesn't sound very, uh, I don't know what's what's the word I'm looking for. Sounds bad, but but at the time it was just simply that I loved it. It was the most interesting thing going on. The internet was just vastly exciting, and it felt like it was going to change the world and be this enormous you know, sort of force for positive good. And I just went from tech job to tech job and worked crazy hours and worked in my spare time and started nonprofits. And it was just all just the most fun I could possibly be having. And I wasn't really worried too much about that, about anything really. Um, and then I ended up in the film industry and slowly burnt out. And with the burnout came this sense that I was in a really literal sense mining myself that every year that I did this you know I was stealing my own sort of internal vital energies and unless it was for something more important than Scooby-Doo 17 the movie that you know what the hell was I doing with my life and so that sort of that sort of created an opening I guess and that combined with uh, a marriage going wrong and a, a moderately difficult divorce. And I ended up being a traveling feral hippie for a couple of years, just as trying something new. I sat, I loved my job. I, I loved the people I worked with, but I just had this nagging sense that it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And finally, hilariously reading a Aleister Crowley book by chance, um, I came up with this, I, I came up with this sort of, thought question for myself, which was, uh, if I accept that there's this thing of true will, that there's a, that there is this purpose for which I am here, right? I'm not entirely sure I believe that, but if for the sake of argument, I do, is there any chance that I feel that I'm going to find that continuing doing the work that I'm doing? Mm. And I knew the answer was no. It was like, I don't see any possibility of that. And it's like, Am I going to find it if I go off traveling? And it's like, well, probably not. But, you know, anything's better than zero. So off I went. And while I was traveling, I stumbled across just, I just met people who I'd never met before. You know, everybody I'd ever interacted had been career ambitious and middle class and, you know, wed to their careers. And all of a sudden I met people who were deliberately living their lives in different ways. And it was this amazing experience for me um you know i remember sitting down with this russian girl at a cafe and she looked at me and she's like 
so what do you do? And I started to tell her about the work I'd done. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, no, no, I mean, what do you, what do you do for you? And I was like, and I, and I was mortified. I had no answer to that question. I'd be nothing but my work for 20 years. Mm. And like that hit pretty deep. I was like, oh shit, what the hell am I? And so then that sort of couple years of doing yoga and spending a little bit of time in the Thai um, Buddhist monasteries and uh, stumbling across permaculture and then from there finding my way to different intentional communities and just kind of my view of the world and my perspective of what's important changed pretty dramatically. And I guess I can talk more about all of that but that's that's a that's a summary. <laughs> that's a beautiful story. Oh, yeah, that's that's a, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful uh, narrative there of kind of realizing something and being like, "Well, what is this? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. what have I been missing? What about you, Ting? What, what what's your journey sort of been into? Um, yeah, something more regenerative. Any kind of catalyst? Um, I I think that the, the I would say it's been a it's been a lifelong journey, which sounds a bit trite, but um, I had a I had a very spiritual grandmother and a father who was a doctor, so I've always been interested in healing. And we had a farm when I was a kid as well, so I spent a lot of time on the land. So there have been various threads that have have wound their way through my life, um, um, all the way through. But the, the big catalyst for this was really um, in 2003, having essentially burnt out from spending five years working in international animal welfare overseas. Um, my dad died, my grandfather died within six weeks of each other. Um, my mum was spiraling into alcohol-induced dementia. Um, and... I lost my job and a whole lot of stuff. So essentially my life imploded um, within the space of a few months. And I moved back home and, um, and I don't, I don't, re I don't remember it. Well, actually let me take a step back. I remember, I remember sitting on my bed in Sydney while I was still working for the animal worker organization. And, um, and I real on some level, I just realized I couldn't do it anymore. Like, like life was like I was on the wrong path, um, and I didn't know how to get out of the one that I was. I don't didn't know how to get off the one that I was on. Had you already I, trained as a lawyer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. I wasn't working as a lawyer, so mm -hmm. uh, but I had trained as one by then. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember thinking, I remember feeling that I was on the wrong path, but having no idea how to get off it, and having some, some sense, you know, that that sense when you are kind of observing yourself from another place, disassociated, mm, um, like, yeah, yeah, and it's like, but and not not in a not in a psychological disassociated state, but or like a witness, my, my soul was like I had okay. like kind you of were person, witnessing, I was witnessing myself feeling that I had to get off this path and not knowing how to do it. Mm. Having this awareness that if I didn't find a way of doing it consciously, that the universe would create something and that might not be very pleasant. Um, mm. But I didn't know how to get off it. And so the universe did indeed create a pretty... Um, Can you uh, share what happened? ...crucial way of doing it. Well, it was, the, it was, it was really the, um, the process of... So while I was, for the last few years that I was in Sydney, my dad was dying um, back in New Zealand. Um, and mum was spiralling into a really bad, a really pretty crappy place with um, alcohol and prescription drug dependence. Um, and I increasingly lost focus on my work. Mm -hmm. um, and it got to the point where they were like, um, you're not the right person for this role anymore. Mm. Um, and that was pretty, pretty abruptly done. Um, and in retrospect, not hugely skillfully managed, but it it threw me in the deep end of um, of what had what then became a healing journey of at least you know, I, I would say I'm probably still on it. Yes. Uh, 
Mm. They're there forever, yeah. I think. <laughs> Still on it. Um, but at some point in the, in, the, in the early days of all of that, I was, a, I was not in a great, I think about six months after I left my job and dad died, my grandfather died and I came back to New Zealand, I got a really weird skin condition. Mm. That, um, the dermatologist eventually kind of vaguely diagnosed as this weird thing that no one really knows how it arises and how it resolves. Um, but I was, I was, I was sure that it was a um, physiological response to chronic stress um, and a whole bunch of stuff. And somewhere in the middle of that, had the had the the was committed to healing it naturally, to using food mm. as medicine and finding alternative ways of healing. And, and you you both become quite fascinating experts in your own areas and. Uh, one thing that really interests me, um, being an old hippie, so to speak, is that you, you know, you're both very spiritual people with very heightened conscious and awareness. You're both great empaths, yet you're both eating very um, carnivore-based diets. And I, I'm excited by that because it sort of throws a wrench into, uh, there's the, the bark of truth from the beautiful dogs, Dio and Audrey. Um, because I think a lot of us get these rigid mental concepts of what we should eat. And I know I've been there and suffered terribly um, because, I, uh, and I, you know, obviously you eat very ethically, you, you put a huge amount of care into everything that you eat. So I'd, I'd love to, I, I want to circle back later to when I first met you, you can get the dogs to be quiet. Um, but um, maybe Adam, you could start to talk about your healing journey and the kind of very extreme diet that you're on now and, and how it's working for you and just to rattle some cages out there. Yeah, well, I mean, I always thought of, I, I always thought of myself as just sort of one of those people that was well, you know, it's like I never really had any major health issues. I never really had, you know, I could take pharmaceuticals and they always just sort of did what they were supposed to do and I never had side effects and everything was fine. And then in my late 20s, I started to get psoriasis, which was pretty mild, but was frustrating. Um, and, you know, the doctors sort of give you a tube of hydrocortisone cream and say, there's nothing you can ever do about it, apply this. Um, and that, even in my late 20s, that that didn't kind of sit very well with me. I was like, like well, surely this has to be a sign of something that's wrong. Like this, like, this can't just be kind of like everything's fine and here's a thing you can do to treat it topically. Like, I was just, and so I, I didn't know anything about medicine I didn't know anything I mean I've been healthy my whole life I didn't know anything about anything um, and so that was sort of a, a provocation that I didn't do a whole lot about other than kind of think about and occasionally poke at the internet and then uh, when I went traveling sort of about a few months into traveling I got a migraine for the first time I didn't know it was a migraine my migraines aren't excruciating headaches they're just kind of it feels like to me, it feels like a really bad flu, but without any of the, the flu symptoms. So I thought I had malaria, or I thought I had just gotten a really bad flu or something. Actually, I thought I was hangover. I thought I was hungover at first until it went on for four days. Um, and then at, by the end of my traveling, I had started to get really mild arthritis in my hands, which I'd never had before. And that sort of freaked me out because doing tech work, you know, like my hands are my ability to earn a living. And so I started experimenting with uh, supplements and you know, sort of discovered that turmeric and curcumin could make my arthritis go away. Um, but then I, I found a bunch of different things and they would work for a little while and then they would stop working. Um, and it was, uh, it wasn't really until I met Tink that I took anything seriously. In the first six months that Tink and I were together, um, we had three miscarriages. And at the end of that, Tink was a mess. And so I started scratching my head and there wasn't anything that the doctors could do. I mean, they, they more or less said, just keep getting pregnant and it'll, you know, it'll be all right. And I was like, well, I don't think that that's a good plan. <laughs> and so, we made the, the decision that uh, we weren't gonna keep trying to have a baby, um, but Tink was just exhausted and shattered and kind of only barely coping. 
And so I started looking around as like, well, what could we do about this? And so I found the paleo autoimmune protocol and I found a local weirdly army doctor who did consulting on the side who would sort of help us through that initial phase of doing that. And he was great. Um, and so we both did this diet. I didn't really think there was anything wrong with me. I, I was mostly just doing this in solidarity to help out Tink. And after a couple of years of that, we learned a bunch and Tink was sort of more or less okay. You know, still, you know, the, the crisis was over. But my health was continuing to get steadily worse until by the end, by the beginning of last year, I was having sort of a migraine and some kind of arthritis attack. I don't actually know whether it's gout or psoriatic arthritis or a combination of them. I've never had it tested, but some sort of pretty debilitating joint pain about once a month. So, you know, for about two weeks out of every month, I was not really very capable of anything other than feeling kind of sorry for myself. And a little while before that, I'd stumbled across this carnivore diet and I'd stumbled across uh, people, just this endless set of online testimonials of people who had been curing autoimmune disease, which psoriasis is and which are... Um, psoriatic arthritis. Psoriatic, well, psoriasis is and psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. I'm pretty sure I don't have rheumatoid arthritis, but those are both autoimmune. Um, is autoimmune, so I, so I, I was repelled and fascinated by it. I mean, I'd been vegetarian most of my adult life, kind of sloppy vegetarian. I was always the sort of vegetarian who had a steak for my birthday. Um, but uh, kind of, I talked to Tink about it, and Tink was mostly appalled by the idea of eating only meat. And so there was a bit of negotiation there. And then around July last year, I was just like, I can't bear this anymore. I gotta do something. The only thing the doctors have to offer is pharmaceuticals, which kind of freak me out because in more recent years, my experience is any pharmaceuticals I take don't agree with me at all. And I end up with all the side effects. And so I was pretty, pretty resistant to that. And if it was gout, they can put you on allopurinol, which is pretty safe and pretty effective. Um, but I know from habit that if I do something which relieves the symptoms, I just elevate my lifestyle. You know, it's like I start drinking again, I start eating ice cream again, I eat all of the things which cause inflammation until I make problems for myself again. And so in this way, pain is my primary teacher. And I knew that if I took the pain away artificially, I wouldn't actually solve the problem. Mm, and so yeah. I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna do it. And so I did a heap of research and a heap of reading and I knew that there was, if I had gout, I knew that uh, going into ketosis was likely to trigger a series of gout attacks, which also going on to allopurinol, the most common gout medication also does. Um, so I sort of braced for that and it did. And I spent two months having pretty much back-to-back -back gout attacks, which was awful. Um, and then it sort of cleared up. It's been eight months now, is it? Has it out? Started in July, so July, August, December, January, February. Yeah, yeah, eight months. Yeah, eight months. And and Tink, you've had a similar journey where a lot of your, um, you know, let's say, problems or issues, physically and even emotionally, have been enormously um, attenuated by diet, which is really kind of what all the scientists and doctors are now working on. This vast new territory of the microbiome and how the second brain really affects our psychology and our mood and our emotions and of course our immune system and everything like that and you're doing really great too with your own unique take on this so do you want to share a little bit about your journey yeah i had as adam said i had um we had miscarriages three miscarriages in six months and i was i was pretty wrecked after that and i remember yeah. um one night because my because my dad had had a form, a form of dementia called Louie body which is a pretty awful combination of both oh gosh i think um robin williams had that yeah he did alzheimer's and parkinson's so it's a pretty it's a pretty awful disease um and um you know my my dad was very much a man of science um scorpio and a man of science and um we never really talked about anything spiritual but in, in many ways, I found I felt more of a connection with him after. I mean, he was very uncommunicative after he died. And um, 
and I had this night where I woke I woke up bolt upright in the middle of the night and I suddenly realized how unwell I was mm. um, and oh I'd, I'd gone to bed actually what had happened I'd gone to bed and I'd had a tremor in my hand mm. and I thought oh it's just a muscle being weird and woke up in the middle of the night and it was still going and it was like shit actually I'm really unwell and then I had this very clear sense of dad being in the room and him saying you can heal this another way you know, you know, you can heal yourself with food. Oh my gosh! Um, and Adam had, by that stage, been doing a bunch of bunch of bunch of research. I was in town, so I came back to Pepper Pepper, and it was like, I think we have to do. I um, don't even think we have to do AIP. We have to do autoimmune paleo. Um, I'd been, I for for much of my adult life, I'd been vegetarian too, and then um, Adam and I began to eat meat, which was, you know, and I'd the organisation I'd worked for. Um, and animal welfare, a lot of what we'd done was um, was working on humane slaughter. You know, we weren't an organization that promoted um, vegetarianism or not eating meat because, you know, certainly my experience of that is that it's is, is that's very much a privilege of much of the West. Like most of the, we worked in developing countries and most of developing countries, people in it don't have the privilege of choosing to eat in the way that we can. So that's we were very... Insight. We were very carefully not promoting um, vegetarian, but um, vegetarianism, let, let alone um, um, no animal products at all. And we worked in humane slaughter because that was one of the big issues you know, to, um, um, that we worked with. And I, so I, I chose not to eat meat because I'd seen some pretty awful things. Um, but it became very, it became increasingly clear that actually my body needed what. Um, it needed some meat. It needed some animal protein. Um, and so we started doing broth and, and meat and, you know, slow cooked meat and, and all the rest of it. Um, I'm now, I, and I had actually, I mean, apart from being, I mean, really when, it, when Adam and I were first together, it was, I, I've always been a foodie. I love food. I come from a yes. family of people who love food. I love to cook. Um, and was largely, was largely, bomb-proof, like I could pretty much eat anything and drink anything, um, until I wasn't, until after the miscarriages, suddenly I wasn't, like I became pretty intolerant of gluten and dairy and legumes and grains and all, you know, everything else, so we we have ended up, I've ended up, I mean, Adam's carnivore, which as he said, I've struggled with um, um, in many ways, partly because of the lack of diversity of eating. Um, I struggle with, but it's hard to argue when when you see someone in lots of pain and then they eat in a particular way and, and that's not there anymore. That's crazy. There's, so mu there's so much that we want to do. You know, I, gu I guess the place, I mean, I've ended up being basically some meat and vegetables and um, um, no nuts, no grains, no legumes, um, um, occasional coffee and some chocolate and no alcohol, like I'm completely intolerant of alcohol. Um, and and I, re I still wrestle with, because I also know, I mean, we have land here. We have, a, um, we have some land here that we intend to have livestock on and intend to grow animals for our own meat. And mm. I, I'm, you know, I also come from an animal, a family of crazy animal lovers, like animals are part of our family. Mm, and I yeah, still really wrestle. I'm still wrestling somewhat to Adam's frustration because I think he's pretty keen to get um, some cattle. But in, but in a way that the most amazing and loving thing you can do is give your animals the oh, very best life. And you're the one who taught me how sustainable farming can very much include animals and it, it really is a game changer. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of misunderstandings out there. I know we don't have a huge amount of time today. Yeah, but whereas I get Adam to talk. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would love to, you know, I, I just want to touch quickly. When I first met you, Tink, you, you told me the amazing story of how you found Pekka Pekka, the almost magical close encounters of a third kind thing where you'd been doing this drawing over and over again. You turned a corner, you drove up a hill, and there was Pekka Pekka. And now you two have found each other, and you seem to be, you know, Adam was talking earlier about finding a sacred purpose, and it's almost like finding each other and being together at Pekka Pekka is... Uh, looks like a sacred purpose to me. And then all your enormous um, deep dives, both of you into, 
um, right living and um, you know really doing your own research and not just accepting received wisdom and now you're um, you're you're moved towards possible community if we could talk a little bit about that that would be very exciting and the and the, the you know the, the animals being part of a good farming practice yeah um, as as um, Stephanie mentioned, I Pekka Pekka found me, I think, rather than I found it. Um, and the drawings, I'd, I'd sit in law lectures, you know, 25 years ago and sketch these series of, of dwellings that kind of stretched across a hill overlooking the coast. Um, and it, it always, I, it was like, it was like looking at something through a um, frost, through frosted glass, like I couldn't really see the detail of it. But somehow I knew that I knew that there was more than just me and immediate family on the hill. Um, and then as I, I before or while I was um, when I found Pekka Pekka, I was working for an online farmers market and my interest in food had um, continued to grow and organic food and sustainable. You know, I'd, um, I'd developed a sustainable clothing company, you know, done, done a bunch of things. So um, it was becoming increasingly clear to me that growing your own food and community was the was where I wanted to hit, um, and it felt like this this kind of sanest response to so much of the craziness that was evolving in the world. Um, and so we've been very slowly, um, methodically, moving towards that. Very slowly. Very slowly. <laughs> A lot of that has been because. Um, you know, again, there's there's so much we could talk about here, but um, we can do another one. For us, for us, for, for our relay, I mean, um, one of the the tools that has been transformative for us and for me um, has been nonviolent communication. Mm. Um, has been learning how to communicate in a particular way, and I come from a family mm. of fairly skilled communicators, but um, communicating from a point of pretty limited emotional intelligence. Um, and it seems from the, a, a lot of people we've talked about, Adam's had more direct experience of community, which he can touch on, but um, it seems where community goes wrong and it goes wrong, intentional community goes wrong a lot and, yeah. and badly, like it really often implodes, is lack of communication skills, of not yeah. knowing how to have the hard conversations. So, in, and in retrospect, I would say much of our very slow, methodical move towards community here has been learning that mm -hmm. um, and coming to this place that we're coming to a place where whatever we do here in terms of community, um, clear and conscious and brave communication is, is at the center of it, really, from my perspective. So I don't know that. That. Yeah, I mean, I think the big lesson I learned about community, so I, I lived in uh, a sort of a traveler hippie community for about a month in Thailand when I was traveling, and then I lived on, it wasn't, it wasn't really set up to be an intentional community, but in my opinion, that's what it was. Um, I spent three months on a farm in Australia, um, and then I spent six months at uh, an intentional community up in Hawksbeck in New Zealand. and. All of them were disastrous in different ways. Um, but what I saw was that problems weren't actually, like it wasn't that these were intractable, impossible problems. It's just that these were problems which the people running the communities didn't have the skills to solve. Mm -hmm. Mm. But that something like uh, NBC, nonviolent communication, is a great tool for, um, you know, and they, they were all based, all of the problems were based in poor communications. And I've been, I've been a manager, you know, I, I grew up with a psychologist and, and a social worker and a teacher for parents, you know, so that's my, my family's talked about people and communication and how you solve those sorts of problems for fun ever since I was a little kid. So I was like, well, that's stuff that I know a bit about. Um, and I don't, I think we can solve those problems. Mm, yeah. And so I don't, I don't feel like, like 
if you ask around, I would say something like 90% of the stories you'll hear from people about communities are, are relatively disastrous. You know, so it's not very encouraging. Yeah. They seem to be hothouses, like you hear, uh, you know, everything's accelerated and it's kind of like a hothouse. So everything comes to the surface. And would yeah. you say that's your experience? Yeah, yeah I, I think, well, and you know, almost everybody is uh, resistant to conflict. Like almost all of us want to avoid conflict. And the trick in communities is to learn tools and patterns of communication and to put in rituals and patterns into the group so that there are regular and kind of forced opportunities for things to come out you know so things don't just simmer in the background for so things just don't just simmer in the background for you know months or weeks or months or years until finally somebody explodes in fury because at that point it's too late i mean you yeah. might be able to but, but it's that, that's the wrong time to be dealing with the problem. Yeah, it's like if you think of indigenous communities, there's always like a weekly gathering where, yeah. you know, everyone joins and the elders open it up and everybody speaks. Um, and even in small villages, you have something similar to that. And it's like we've lost that. And it seems we're regaining it now and also in, in romantic relationships and friendships. We're kind of really learning that. It's almost like a paradigm shift. That, that these these things will not work. We'll not get the depth we're all craving if we don't learn how to really communicate and and express our feelings without blame or projection. That's right. So, you know, that to yeah. me is the heart of NBC. Is it's a way of learning to speak in a way, speak to others about hard things in a way which will build connection over time rather than destroy connection over. Yeah, time. take responsibility mm. for how we're feeling and do it with vulnerability and courage. Well, that's worth a whole other conversation. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very, very important missing piece for everybody. And we're all we're all kind of moving into greater levels of honesty and courage, and yeah. um, it it really works. It's amazing. And it, one of the yeah, one of the um, memorable moments for me, we did a we had an NBC workshop here. A friend of ours is a teacher, and she did a um, a weekend workshop, and and there were, I don't know, eight of us or 10 of us doing the workshop and mostly kind of in our 30s and 40s and fairly competent human beings with lots of interesting life experience, wandering around with a sheet of paper, a list of NBC of um, needs and feel of feelings and needs. And Anna, the teacher, would give us these scenarios and you had to kind of think about, kind of connect with how you were feeling and what you needed. And these really competent people wandering around with a sheet of paper, a sheet of paper saying, I think, I think I'm feeling this. Yeah. Or I think I'm, you know, it's like we're so not taught how to do that. Like we, none mm. of us have. Emotional literacy is yeah. very new. Neuroscience, yeah. neuroscientists like Antonio Damasio, mm. who is one of the leaders in emotional literacy, was laughed out of the universities. It's, it's only been in the last 10 to 15 years where universities have financed uh, studies in neuroscience regarding emotions and they've discovered uh, the the enormous uh, impact emotions have on our mental efficacy and our bodies and and a, on an energetic consciousness level they're actually the fuel for our manifestation not our thoughts that old secret thing thoughts will become things well they won't without your emotions and if your emotions are very troubled you will create Frankenstein's that's the definition of self sabotage so Just it's it's really it's, yeah it's super interesting. Um, one of my favorite, even in sort of fairly uh, kind of emotionally literate communities, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that people tend to think of good emotions and bad emotions. I you agree. Know, it's like, you know, people will talk about shame as if it's this ridiculous, stupid, crippling thing and why yeah. would anybody want it? And one of the things that I think is an incredibly useful piece of reframing is I now think of emotions as a form of pre-verbal intelligence, right? I love that. Mm. Right, emotions are an embodied response to our environment. And, and so, our past to experience. That's right, and so all an emotion is, is it's, is it's, is it's, a, is a, it's a fundamental pre-verbal form of intelligence which is telling us something about the environment we're in, right? Mm. So whether we're feeling joy or fear or shame, 
all of that is telling us something about the environment we're in. And if we learn to listen to that and learn what those emotions mean, then all of a sudden it's like this little piece of the world opens up. All of a sudden I know that, you know, that shame that I'm feeling means that I'm behaving in a way which isn't in alignment with what I believe. Mm, yeah, um, I love that. That's very insightful. With the world, which means that I'm out of alignment with myself, right? And so I have to go, okay, well, so what do I believe? And what, what's going on around me that's causing conflict with that? Or, right. or is your belief out of alignment with yourself possibly sure. as well? Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I, want to leave, I, just, yeah. I want to let go. Well, I just want to jump in. And um, so I guess we talk, we started out talking about the microbiome and then went more to, I guess, the macro of, of how the humans relate. And um, but now we're, also, we're kind of saying what you're saying, Adam, is that there's this it's about a relationship to the um, to the environment this that is the purpose of all these different different parts of ourselves and our intelligence our emotional self our physical self our and our thinking self all these different parts and more but yeah it is i know we started looking at some of um the work of john young but yeah i guess it's quite an exciting prospect that this is a, a knowledge that i guess maybe modern the modern humans lost but it's the knowledge of, of, yeah, of using the, the environment and the natural context as a tool to train ourselves and to train our, um, our very multifaceted intelligence, which kind of has a few bits and pieces that maybe um, many of us have not developed. And I don't know, have you guys got any insights on that, that retraining or that remembering process and, and maybe how it relates to to being out there and being, you know, in your garden and whatnot and being like, just observing things, you know, what sort of experiences and, and learnings have come through this kind of interaction? I think, I, I think, I mean, I think for me, it's been a, a, a many, many year process of becoming more embodied. Yeah. Becoming at least some, somewhat embodied. I would say that for a long time I was, you know, I was raised in a very academic intellectual family and went to a kind of high achieving school and was very much in my head, you know, trained as a lawyer. Um, and what, in, in, in many respects, the, what the lack of wellness has done has forced me into my body. Hmm. Um, and the extension of that as, as, as I've, figured out a way to eat and live that keeps me well um i am of i am able to be more embodied but i'm also i'm also able to create much greater connection with the environment around me um so that the more embodied i am the more i am i am able to be present with the people around me and present to the environment i'm a part of um so yeah for me, I would say embodiment has been key. Well, that's, that very ties in with being able to um, live with your emotions. Because yeah. if we can't live with our emotions, we're continually disassociating and jumping up into the safety of our, of our minds. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely fascinating, the journey you've been, both been on. I think embodiment is a really key phrase for the new paradigm. And it's um, kind of... I think we went through an era of spiritual bypass and it was all about this idea of even in the ancient mystics that we might love, the great saints, you know, leaving the body, getting off the wheel in India, et cetera. And now we're kind of saying, no, let's stay here. Let's create heaven on earth. And in order to do that, we need to be in the body. And how much of us can we get in this body? Like you were talking about messages from your higher self, Adam, like, you know, can we get that entire vehicle, the entire vehicle, however big it is, how much of it can we get in this body? And it seems like the more we get in the body, the more this body is this amazing sensing organ, multidimensional even, um, you know, sensing the past and the future. It's, I feel that the body is the new frontier in a crazy way. And emotions are very much of the body. The emotion, emotions are a chemical cascade we interpret in our brain based on our perceptions and our, our beliefs. So the emotions in the body are kind of our new um, teachers in a way. I think it's also, it's also for me, I, at some point I had this kind of um, really sharp awareness that, you know, 
this is a this is a whole thing, you know, like the the mind, the body, and the spirit is all, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a complex, beautiful system that we know so, you know, we still know so little about. Um, and that one of the things that brings up for me is, you know, when when Adam and I got married, part of part of our vows was for Adam supporting me and being the most tink that I can be and me supporting Adam and being the most Adam that I can be. Um, and which we've called each other on a couple of times. Which we have called each other on. That is wonderful. A couple of times or more. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of circling back in a way to like, like how I can, where I am at the moment is trying to, is, is having largely figured out a way to eat that keeps me well, keeps me becoming more, you know, I'm becoming more and more well. And in many, in many ways, I would say I feel mm. healthier and certainly my mind is clearer and my mood is more stable than I was at 30 or 25. Mm. Um, and in doing that, I'm of much, I'm, I'm capable of being of much greater service to the world. Like what I, really what I want to do is experience mm be really present to who I am, you know, who, what is the most, who is the most tank that I can be? Because I mean, that would, it would be, it feels like increasingly it would be such a shitty thing, such a shame to get to the end of my life and not having experienced the most of who tank is and have that be of service to others. And I've really struggled. I still struggle. I still have my moments, particularly when I'm cooking Adam dinner and I put a platter of, meat on the table our fridge is full of dog of raw meat for the dogs and meat for adam like philosophically tingles on light and love (laughs) (laughs) and chocolate um i would and in many respects philosophically i would i would love to be vegetarian yeah Um, i i agree it's very hard i adore animals and and, you know worked in international animal welfare i totally get that if you're going to kill an animal for meat the best way of doing it is to raise the animal really well yourself and look after it and it has a beautiful life and one bad day Mm -hmm. and then you really respectfully um are nourished by that I still struggle with that emotionally. Like I'm still kind of working my way up to the the prospect of having animals here that I that I'm the nature of being tank as I'm impo- it's impossible to fall in love with the need to not form an emotional attachment to those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really struggle with that. But actually, at the uh, I was going to use the it's such a cliche at the end of the day. But really, at the end of my day, the way I can be of most service is is I, I need to be well. There's not, I, like if I'm, if I'm really low in energy and I have a foggy brain and, and I'm a shitty mood and all the rest of it, I really, I'm pretty useless. Yeah. Like there's, not, like there's no growing, there's no building community, there's no working in the garden, there's no, you know, developing the land and doing all this amazing regenerative stuff we want to do unless I feel well. And that means figuring out what, I need to, to eat to do that. And for me, that means some meat. Well, you guys are doing something right. I mean, being around you is an absolute pleasure. Your practice of allowing each other makes you, it makes everyone else feel so allowed to be who they are as well. It's, it's such a delight. And you, you kind of create automatic community, both of you. It's, it's, and, I, and I love the fact that you're going slowly. I think that's very wise. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a very big deal. But, you know, just even having this dream, which you've always had um, since I've met you and Adam coming into your life was such a, a beautiful miracle. And you both have all the skill set together to, to, to create this. And I know so many of our friends are thinking about community. And even if we're not going to be on that community, to just be part of it and be able to bring something in it as an offering and enjoy it is also a great gift for all of us as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I don't know whether you guys are, I mean, we, we don't probably have time to do it now, but to touch on the work of John Young. Um, do you want to do a tiny little deep dive? What, how are you doing for time, Adam? You've got 20 minutes. Wanna... Oh, we, we're good. We're good. I, 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 got, I got two things I yeah, want to yeah, say. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one, just sort of finishing up on the, um, the eating meat thing, is the more time I spend, and I realize this will be provocative, and some people will think it's... Um, 
facile, but the more time I spend in the garden, the more convinced I am that plants are intelligent. I totally agree. Hmm. The more convinced I am that everything cares about its life. And I've kind of reached this point where it's like, I feel regret every time I pull a weed. I feel regret, regret when I mow the lawn, you know? And yet all life eats life. And so, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's like I, I was vegetarian for a long time because I believed it was the right moral choice. Like, you know, I could stop eating meat. That was a relatively easy thing for me to do. I didn't mind. But what I sort of, I'm starting to see is that it's a very, like, like, what do we say it's okay to eat? And what do we say it's not okay to eat, right? The things that it's not okay to eat are the things that look like us. You know, the things that are warm and furry and have big eyes and we can get it, you know, it's easy for us to empathize with them. You know, it's like, the, you know, it's like the less easy it is to empathize with the creature, the more okay it is to eat with, eat them. So we're fine with eating carrots. We're fine with eating insects, more, you know, insects, you know, it's, and it's like, and so I'm like, but I can't convince myself that, you know, uh, the life of a shield bug is any less valuable than the life of a cow. Well, certainly many um, great um, spiritual sages would agree with you. Yeah. And also they have discovered that plants have uh, neurons. Um, you know, that there are, and the, there's so much intelligence now about the, uh, um, you know, the intellectual capacity of plants. Like there's a mother tree that passes on warnings to all the other trees. And yeah. when she dies, she gives all her wisdom. I mean, we've been very arrogant to think that we are, are the, the highest intelligence on this planet. And I think we're gonna learn a lot in the next I mean, decades. Monica Gagliano has been doing amazing research about plants. I mean, she's shown in scientific studies that plants have memory, that plants can learn, that you can evoke a Pavlovian response from a plant. You know, it's like all of these things that we thought were only capable with brains, you know, yeah. they don't have brains, right? You know, and yet they're exhibiting all of these behaviors clearly in scientific studies. So. I mean, I think it's just a matter of time until that stops being controversial. And then what the hell do you do? Like, how do you make a moral decision about what to eat other than to eat only what you need? And, you know, the, a friend who's spent a lot of time studying with the Tibetan Buddhists, you know, she says their point of view is better to kill one cow and have a hundred meals from it than to have one meal, which is two fish. You yes, know, and, I've heard that, so, yeah. It's like our modern idea of what's moral and a vegetarian concept is is just one way of thinking about these problems. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's what I love. I love that. I think it's very important for people to get a bit more flexible with all this. And as, as we're understanding this and science is our best friend in this, as yeah. they are doing a deep dive into the consciousness of plants. And of course, people who've taken plant medicines have no doubt about the genius of the plant kingdom. It's very, very humbling and extraordinary and, and, and um, I've come to the point where to me everything has consciousness and it, it, it is like how do we be in the most integrated alignment so we're making the best choice in this moment with the greatest honoring and the greatest reverence and then how can we make our offering really big and you know in return to to life in whatever way is perfect for us yeah I, I've, I've got something to add to that is that yeah that's that's a bit of a a lateral shift in how we're thinking about life and and nutrition and what we take it's sort of like it's less about um individual units and like well are you eating one plant it's more like just like we looked at a microbiome it's like it's it's about is the whole thing healthy and thriving so it's like can can human beings eat from it doesn't matter what they're eating but are they carefully picking out that one deer or that one um plant and then the whole thing stays in stasis it's like um and, and we use that to sustain ourselves and yeah but the, i also wanted to chime in on the the empathy thing is um i think it's good that we are able to empathize with animals and um because arguably that faculty is one of the ones that have de has deteriorated uh in, in the city life um because it's just too loud and, and hectic 
to have it switched on. So we're sort of trained out of it because it would just be uh, uncomfortable really. Um, so yeah, it's good to have it switched on and uh, because it allows us to navigate the environment. And I think it makes to taking that life a much more careful thing. So it's kind of like, we wouldn't do it lightly. We wouldn't just be killing, killing, killing like, like some hunter jacked up on adrenaline. We'd be like, okay, I'm going to have to emotionally process this for like a week or something. So you, you see, you see the value of life and um, the reverence of life. Um, and I, I almost have this an, an ideal that human beings are probably already are in, in some pieces and in some places, but we can move into this ideal of being like, yeah, that steward of the land who like feels so you, this really wide view to feel like I am responsible for this whole, this whole hillside, this whole environment. Um, and, but that includes the people on it and to take care of them, I will take a life, but, you know, be sensitive about it. Like, I think there's, there's this realm of potential there. That's like a, a whole level of maturity. I find that quite exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole nother rant in there about, um, Stephen Jenkins talks about this a lot, but how, how we live in a death phobic culture. Sure. We believe that death is the worst possible thing. There's no acceptance of it. Like death is something to fight and to rage against and to deny in any way that you can. And that extends to the idea of animals as well. So it's so the intent with which you kill a deer doesn't matter. What matters is that you kill the deer. But I'm not entirely sure that makes sense to me the more I think about it. You know, if you, if you read old indigenous stories, there was this huge amount of intention and respect for the animal. In fact, Phil, like what you were talking about with the empathy, you know, that empathy for the animal is what allowed you to track it, which is what allowed you to be drawn to it and find it, you know, and successfully complete a hunt. You know, that, that empathy, that connection to the animal is fundamental. And so I think despite the fact that it's kind of appalling to our modern sensibilities, how we kill matters. Right? I agree. You know? yeah. How we do everything matters. It's like, how conscious can we be? How reverential can we be to everything? Our surroundings, our buildings, our, our computers. I mean, like how much can we honor life and everything? And what does that look like? I, I think that's really crucial. I, I completely agree. That's that's the missing piece with all of this, and um, yeah. Did you have? You said you had two things that you wanted. Yeah. So like the other thing I want to say. So we've been doing this deep dive on John Young, who sort of essentially he the, the very very abbreviated version is he's been working with indigenous cultures around the world for decades, trying to discover the patterns which create nature connection. Mm. So we've, he's done a series of little short videos and we've been watching them with friends. Um, but the, the, the sense that I have, it, it started off with learning NBC, right? And NBC is not a complicated process. I was like, it's like, how am I learning? You know, it's like, I had, a, I had a psychologist and a teacher for parents and who thought this stuff was interesting and I didn't learn any of this, right? And this stuff isn't hard, it's not complicated. It's a basic set of rules and just sort of a little bit of a twist to see the world in a different way. It's like, it's like, I can't bring myself to believe that this is a discovery of the 1970s. You know, this has to be ancient knowledge. Like humans had to understand this at one point. And if that's true, that means we forgot it. And that seems to be being borne out with John Young said, like we've forgotten everything. Yeah. Like, we, have, we have fundamentally forgot how to be connected to nature. And we have become disconnected from the things that our body minds are capable of. Like, like yeah. we have no idea what we're capable of. And I sort of, the more I read and the more I learn, like I'm just kind of filled with this, this sort of sense of sort of raging frustration that I'm, I'm a pale shadow of what I could be. Like, like I have all of this potential, all of these abilities that I didn't even know existed until I was in my 40s. But it's so exciting that you're you're understanding it now and you've got plenty of time and you're part of a new wave where we're coming back to this remembering, especially in European descent cultures, just to acknowledge the fact that many cultures haven't forgot this. You know, it's like if a child falls down in Peru, they not only get physical healing, they get emotional healing right there on the spot. 
you know, to, to transform that. And I, and I see now a lot of this coming into the schools, which is so beautiful. Emotional literacy is a really big deal now in the schools and learning how to safely express your emotion and have discernment, not override the messages our bodies are, are giving us and, and therefore navigating our lives with so much more grace because we're able to sense what's in the room and if it's good or bad for us. And I, I think it's great. I, I don't know John Young. I know Tom Brown and grandfather, the Lakota shaman that taught Tom Brown. I got so into those books. I was crying. I loved, I fell madly in love with grandfather. Everybody should read those books. And thanks for the huge tip on John Young. I shall doing, be doing a deep dive into him as well. Um, and I look forward to you guys maybe doing workshops on all this stuff because you're getting to be pretty much experts in, in, your, in your areas, you know, with a lot of insights. A couple more lifetimes. We'll have it figured out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just keep reincarnating and you know coming back to this 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 place. No, I think you you will you're doing you're you're already teaching me so much. I, I really feel that you teach a lot in our community, and you're kind of brave and going forward and and doing what's right for you without letting your minds trip you up, like still so many people are doing. And and the shame the shame train as they call it, um, you know, which is can be very much. Um, uh, Geiger counter for your surroundings, but also uh, beliefs set up by our culture, our family, and our schools that are really outdated. And time, and maybe also a signal to say, "Can I look at this? And is it right? I'm having this right now." I think, yeah, I think the, the for me part of it has become is 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 this realization that I am I am a part of nature. I think our, our Western culture, we've, I mean, for, lo, for so long we've seen ourselves as separate from it and above it. Yeah, very arrogant stance. Realizing that I am, that I am, and realize, and-, and You're just under, a meat sack with feelings, Tim. Understanding that in, a, um, in an embodied way. Um, and how, as Adam was saying, like the, the one of the you know the awareness from doing the John Young stuff is just how much capable how much more capable we are of as human beings. There's so much of our capacity that we haven't touched into or learned yet. But neurobiologically we're still capable of it. You know, yeah. He says yeah. we still have these, we all have these buds of neurobiological capability that we haven't that essentially what we're what we need to do is create more connection with nature and that really can be i mean you know go and go and talk to a bumblebee or go and um you know it doesn't it doesn't take a lot i think doesn't take a lot. The, as we are part of it but also the rest of what's out there like life is full of extraordinary teachers mm, everywhere yeah, I loved your story about collecting the little bumblebees in the morning and how that's become such an event. Like who needs who needs the high life and the entertainment, you know, when you can save a gorgeous little bumblebee yeah. first thing in the morning. It, it, it shifts, it kind of downregulates everything and makes us aware of the sacred in the, in the so-called mundane, which is not mundane at all, but completely miraculous. And but I have, also, we yeah. Have, we have millions of, you know, we have, we literally have million, you know, millions of years of being, um, our, our nervous systems are wired to be in nature. Yeah, and we, we benefit so much. But I also wanted to just throw in that theory of morphic resonance from Rupert Sheldrake, that as you're doing this, you're, you're affecting me, you're affecting Phil, who's also on that wavelength anyway. And you know, it's like that 10% thing. Uh, it doesn't take a huge amount of the population to reactivate these dormant things that Adam was talking about. And then suddenly there could be a major quick shift. The pendulum could suddenly go right the other way. And suddenly you're finding, oh my heavens, you know, pop, 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 pop. All those neurons are flashing and it's all kind of emanating from Pekka Pekka around the world, you know, so to speak, in, in other communities who are awakening to this, this extraordinary remembering. But like, just as a really short example, like I was just reading the other day, I, I read about this a while ago, but I've just recently been reading about it again. There's a bunch of blind kids who figured out that we still have the biological and neurological wiring for echolocation. And they figured out how by making a clicks, you know, basically. Amazing. 
you know, and they're playing basketball and riding skateboards and going to the shops. And, you know, this one guy, Daniel Kish, who started a nonprofit foundation to teach blind people how to be able to do this, you know, in, he says in sort of three or four days, you can teach someone the basics of being able to do this. And then there's a lot of practice to get good at it, you know, but we have, we have the wiring to be able to do this. Anybody in a few days could learn the basics of being able to see in the dark. And what they've showed with brain scans is that after a certain amount of time of practicing this, actually it's the visual part of your brain that processes the auditory information. So they are in a, in a meaningful way, actually seeing what they hear. You know, that is freaking awesome. You know, and oh it, my and, God, you've right? got to send me links. <laughs> Just Google Daniel Kish, K-I-S-H. Okay. Yeah. We have to go. But, oh. yeah. Thank you guys so much for coming in and uh, offering your time and, and sharing all your beautiful insights and um, it's been lovely talking to you. Knowledge, experience. It's been beautiful. Yeah. And we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Yeah. We'll touch base again on your journey. Lots yeah. of love to you both. Big blessings. Yeah. Thank and you. Thank you to all of our listeners who tuned in. Absolutely. Love you all and see you guys later. Us. We'll do it again yeah. sometime. Yeah. Yeah. It was lovely. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.